love how it's like, oh, no, we can't play the Ralph video. What do we do? Oh, I guess we'll get Elliot. <laughs> I'm just aware that some of the stories I shared this morning might have brought some things up for people. You're in a safe room, so I just want just a moment of confession. If you've shat yourself, um, just raise your hand. Yeah. yeah, I see I see that hand. Yep. Jason, yes, Scotty, yes, I see that hand. Yep, Mason. Yep. See that hand is there. See that hand green. If you shed on someone else. No, that's a whole nother category. Um, okay, cool. So, where are we? Where, where are we? So, this morning we looked at God's big, good story of God making a good world with good people in His good image, and how um, we rejected that and disobeyed God, but how Jesus came, He died, and has inaugurated His kingdom, welcomed us back into the family, and and back to realize that that goodness again. So I guess that means like the vital question kind of now is, well, like now what? Like if, if kind of this is my identity, then now what? Because it does change things, right? Because that identity of like, oh, we're just escaping off here to earth. And that kind of story, what you do is you just go and kind of try and convince a whole bunch of other people to believe that. Um, and then they kind of do that. And then it's just this kind of like weird pyramid scheme type thing. <laughs> but in this story, God's actually renewing all things. So, so now what? What's our part in that? So that's what we're going to talk about um, tonight. I asked I ask this question a lot. Um, I asked this question a lot in my early 20s. And um, I would come to things like this. And um, I would, you know, put my hand up or go to the front. And um, people would pray these, you know, wonderful things about um, how... Uh, you know, God has um, plans for me and, um, you know, they're, they're good plans to prosper me and not to harm me and um, to give me a hope and a future and a hot wife and a BMW. Um, but really, that's, that's kind of what it, what it was kind of like for me. Um, it was what I, what I was seeking is what I call wanting to win the Christian lottery. What is that? Well, it sounds a little bit like this. This is called Ticket 151. Congratulations, you have won the Christian lottery. In three months, you will be gifted and unfathomable, unfathomable talent to preach to the masses and or be a pop star. Like Lord, but more popular and spiritual. People will play your records, records backwards and be healed. You will single-handedly change the trajectory of the world forever because God has decided that you're not only deeply loved by him, but more importantly, better than everyone else. Everyone will be jealous of you, particularly that person you're currently jealous of. You'll maintain your integrity throughout, which will maintain your authority, which will maintain your ability to do whatever you want, but nothing that takes too much effort or sacrifice. You will be co cool both at Cuba Vale and the Hunter Lounge. Not lukewarm, just hot everywhere. And that person you're crushing on, they'll marry you twice because you're that anointed. <laughs> so for me, um, as a young adult and seeing my life stretch out before me, I saw success as twofold. 
So sure, for me, I had this kind of righteous motivation to want to contribute to um, God's kingdom, but also, and equally, in a subtle and almost imperceptible way, I think I saw this contribution to the kingdom also as a proxy to try and get all the things that I always wanted anyway. Basically, just to get all the things that my culture, growing up, had taught me to want from a very, very early age. So... What that meant is to be a worship musician meant to play the big conference. Or to be a preacher meant a large and growing church. You know, not a small, independent, hip crowd in Wellington. Um, ouch, no. Uh, and uh, to be an author meant a New York Times bestseller. Insert your own inclination. You know, those are my own. We've all got our own. Anything fits. But really, I think I wanted the best of both worlds. The temporal and the eternal Christ's kingdom and my own salvations and Instagram followers. As Western Christians, we need to be on guard against the values of our world. Our culture tells us to value things like progress, comfort, individualism, accolade, but these are not values of the kingdom. So when it comes to questions of, well, what, what do we do with our lives, which is really just a question of, you know, what do I do with this kind of these finite resources of time and money and energy? What we need to do is we need to start with the picture of what God is doing in the world and then fit our lives in that. That is as opposed to going, well, what do I want to do with my life? And how does God fit into this picture? So that's kind of where we're going tonight. This kingdom story changes everything. For how we live our lives because not we're not escaping kind of some dying planet but we're actually participating in god with god and the renewal of all things all right so um i love i love me some camping who else loves me some camping yeah a lot of people love camping um so i uh i go camping about once a year um and i just kind of like follow this uh this kind of ritual of uh, coffee, book, board game, um, and repeat. Coffee, book, board game, repeat. And camping for a week is fun. Um, but after kind of a week, you know, your dishes have this, like, impenetrable film of grease um, on the top um, of them, and you've got this kind of, like, hip problem from kind of stumbling over all the guy ropes. Um, and you kind of just want to go home and, like, shower um, and get rid of kind of all the sand that's in places where sand should never have been. So I like camping, but I do camping for a week. In the scriptures, in this thing called the Old Testament that we um, did a very brief overview of this morning, um, the Israelites went camping. But they went camping for 40 years, roaming in the desert. 40 years of nighttime guy rope anxiety. Honestly, though, I kind of want to know how they did that. So um, while God, while camping, God gave, gave them the law. And as part of the law, they were instructed to make the sacrifice to show their devotion to God and make amends for sin. So it was a really kind of quite complex system. So what we're going to do is spend the next 25 minutes kind of detailing it in length. No, it's jokes. Um, but we're actually still going to talk about it for a little bit. Um, so, you know, put your seatbelt on. We're going Old Testament. Uh, so the Israelites, they had all these kinds of offerings, right? But still, not all the offerings were enough to deal with sin. And because of this, every year, 
the high priest would lead a special ceremony for all the people, um, and um, it's called Vision Sunday. Uh, <laughs> no, sorry, it was actually, um, it, was, it was called the Day of Atonement. Um, and so what that basically means, Day of Atonement is like a day to make amends for sin. And so this priest, he would make a special offering on behalf of all the people for the sins of the past year. But on this day, the sacrifice wasn't um, kind of performed like it usually was. So we're kind of getting really deep into the Old Testament here. Um, how it usually was performed um, is the bodies of the animals would be killed and then they would be burned inside the camp. But on the Day of Atonement, the, uh, these animals would be killed and the blood would be taken to the most holy place. And then the bodies would be taken outside the camp. So the bodies of these animals, once a year, taken outside the camp, and there they were, were burned. And so basically what this was, it was this kind of yearly image of the kind of total separation of Israel's sin. Total separation because it's, it's going outside our camp and it's being burnt up there. So um, for um, the Israelites, uh, if we, we think about you know what the camp meant, the camp was this place of security, it was a place of comfort, and outside the camp was really messy, and it was a risky place. There were, there were wild animals out there, there's the enemies out there, and then there's like burnt carcasses that represent their sin, or their buried refuse. So it's like not a very, very pretty place outside the camp. And what's interesting about this is that um, the scriptures, you can turn with me to Hebrews 13 if you are kind of a Bible person, you know, pull it up on your device. In Hebrews 13, the writer uses this image of the camp. And so it reads, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. So that's just kind of referencing what I just mentioned. But then this next verse, verse 12, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. So the writer uses that picture for Jesus. The writer says, you know, this is just like that. So like the Day of Atonement, that's kind of what's going, going on with Jesus. Jesus was killed outside the city gate. So he was hung on a tree. He died on this, this lonely hill, naked and despised by, by all people. And so then we read in verse 13, and this is kind of the fact that just every time I read this, like smacks me in the face. And then we read, let us then go to him outside the camp. Bearing the disgrace he bore. Let us then go to him outside the camp in the scary place, bearing the disgrace he bore. Let us leave the comfort of the camp. Let us go out into the world where there's the dead carcasses of our past, where there's our enemies, where it's dirty, where there's danger, where there's uncertainty, where there's fear. 
And why? Why do we go outside the camp? Well, because Jesus is there. Jesus is out there, outside the camp. He's in the dirt and the shit. He's in the hurt and the pain. That is where we find God, outside the camp. And if you've been in church kind of for any length of time, then I think we've kind of got used to this idea that, like, God lives in here. So God is at, like, this church service, or God is at kind of this home group or this meeting. For me, this, this scripture kind of challenges that idea. You know, God's not just in here. God is out there, roaming in the mess. For the Jews to which Hebrews was written, they would have known what this challenge meant. So for them to go outside the camp was to leave their whole religious system, their family, their security, going into exactly the place they had been avoiding their whole lives. For us, it can be the same, right? For some of us, we have spent kind of so much of our lives uh, being kind of inside the camp, inside the comfort of the church, that for the call to kind of go out can be quite jarring. But that is what it means to bear the disgrace that he bore. Jesus suffered the shame of an execution reserved for only the harshest of criminals. Jesus did not, and this kind of shouldn't really come as any surprise, live a really clean and comfortable life. Nor die a clean and comfortable death. And so then if we're called to be like Christ, then we kind of have to start asking the question about the desires that we have to live clean and comfortable lives. Which, like, let's be very frank, good chunks of our person want that. Good parts of you want to live a clean and comfortable life. Jesus modelled a life of getting right up next to grime and dirt in the world and rubbing noses with it. So I'm going to talk straight for a little bit. Not as a rule, but principally, the Western church hasn't been very good at this. Not as a rule, but principally. We love camps. Look at us. We just love camps. We just lap it up. And we love staying in our camp. And when I say kind of the Western church, what I mean is largely middle class, middle class folk. Which looking kind of about the room, that's kind of a, what a lot of us are. We're kind of good Christian middle class folk. So normally we follow Jesus in our hearts and in our quiet times and in our church services and in our home groups. And we may have even used rhetoric or heard rhetoric about how God loves the broken and the hurting and the poor. But principally, not as a rule, we haven't put our body where our mouth is. So a little example of this, just look on cans. You know that like Christian Accommodation New Zealand website? All the Christian flats 
largely concentrated in wealthy suburbs. When I was moving to Auckland like a number of years ago, it was like trying to find a place. Largely concentrated in wealthy suburbs where people are looking for like exactly the same kind of flatmate that you would find on Trade Me, except just with this kind of like Christian byline. We haven't prioritized relationships with the struggling over the cool people we want to hang out with. We often haven't made friends with the addicted or the homeless or those struggling with their mental health. We haven't made sacrifices of our comfort. We haven't changed our vocation to prioritize kingdom impact over cash money. Instead, we have often prioritized the kingdom of comfort over the kingdom of heaven. In our culture, comfort is the highest ideal. And that is what like so many of us have just been like brought up in is that comfort is your highest ideal. So what that means is that you kind of like go to church and hear a, like a talk like this, or some other kind of talk of some person kind of issuing a, a challenge for us to go out, and you go, oh yeah, God does love the world. Oh yeah, like and He does want me to to serve and He does want me to give. But then when push comes to shove, and love meets comfort. So often for us, comfort wins. So often comfort wins. There's these lyrics from this song by a guy named Keith Green, who was like a um, kind of singer-songwriter in the 80s. Um, and he's, I guess, a prophet. In one of his songs, he says, He brings people to your door, door, and you turn them away as you smile and say, God bless you, be at peace. And heaven just weeps. Because Jesus came to your door, you left him out on the street. To be clear, this isn't a rule. I have many friends that live contrary to this, many of those in this room. I have many friends who have like gone all over the world into like crazy challenging places to pursue the coming of the kingdom of God. It's not a rule, but principally, we haven't been very good at this. We have liked camps. So just to kind of take this to one like more like uncomfortable steps further, which I can do because I have the microphone and, you know, I'm here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what this means for those of us that are materially rich. If you are in this room and you're materially rich, then you know. Here, I'll help. Do you have a smartphone? Do you have a Netflix account? Can you afford to buy that washing powder that's like good for the planet? Do you on lazy nights get takeout? If you do, not as a rule, but maybe principally, that probably means you're materially rich. If it's not you, then you have permission to switch off and fleece our jackets. So let's be honest, us rich folks, and I say us because I'm kind of in this, we are genuinely, gen, generally useless at recognising our spiritual poverty. We're quite crap at that. And I think this is either because wealth becomes our God or it deludes us that we don't think we need one. And it's uncomfortable to be around people who aren't like you. It's awkward 
whether you're rich or not. It's uncomfortable. And so if you're a materially rich Christian, it's hard to engage with the poor. It's easy to give money to someone else to do it. And generally the Western church has kind of done an okay job of that. But it's hard to do it yourself. There was this um, priest called Gustavo Gutres, and he was just a boss. And he um, he asked this like most sucker punch question. He said, "You say you care about the poor, and tell me, what are their names? You say you care about the poor, and tell me, what are their names?" What are their names? Statistically speaking, if you're rich and a Christian, you probably don't know their names. Not as a rule, but principally, from what I've seen of like kind of being around the way, you probably don't know their names. And so how we get around this in the Western church is that kind of felt very like convenient little kind of like acrobatics. So one we've like very conveniently ignored specific references in the scriptures to keep the poor, which are like everywhere and we're not going to go into it because they're everywhere. And we've also ignored Jesus' life too, where he hung out with outcasts and prostitutes and people who work at IRD. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other thing, this is another kind of little acrobatic trick you may have heard, is that we've reaff- we reaffirm, kind of us rich people, the broad blanket of God's love, which means that he loves the rich too, and that's why we run this here business breakfast at 7.30 on Thursday down Willis. Of course, God loves the rich too. I don't disagree with you. But when the person playing that card is clearly quite well healed, and maybe wants to stay that way, my kind of BS meter starts redlining. Is saying God loves the rich genuinely widening his love, or is it narrowing it so we only have to hang out with people who are like us? You know, I actually personally believe it's very unlikely for the rich to meet God at a business breakfast without a comfortable rich foot. I think it's probably kind of unlikely. I think that the number one prerequisite for meeting God is spiritual poverty. You come to God when you recognize your spiritual poverty, your total kind of just utter lack. And I think Rich people can only really recognize their spiritual poverty by being in proximity to the materially poor. I think there's this kind of interchange that happens, and this will make sense to you if you've experienced it, when the materially rich and the materially poor build genuine relationships. The materially rich offer health, nutrition, employment, opportunity, all like good things, important things. 
and the materially poor offer life to your soul. When you meet the poor, you meet Jesus. When you meet the poor, you meet Jesus. That's Matthew 25. If all of that kind of makes you feel like slightly uncomfortable, then good. Um, and that's the end of the rant. So you can kind of like... <laughs> so, um, so how do we do it? Let's kind of move forward from that and say, okay, cool, yep. All right, let's just kind of lean into this a little bit. How might we actually do that? How do we actually follow Jesus outside the camp? Well, actually, it's quite simple. You be this, you go here, you tell that story. So you be generous. You be a restorative person. You be merciful. You be faithful. You be good. You be forgiving. You be accepting. You take risks. You protect people. You be just. You show your vulnerability. You be funny. And you go into a world that is full of people that are living in a bad story and who often just feel like they are unredeemable. And like, you know, the only kind of option is when everything ends. You go to those people and you tell them this good story. You announce to them that they are a beloved child of God. And you journey with them into this good story. And you see them come home. And what the beautiful thing is, is when you do that, you're not kind of just doing that for some person. It's beautiful for them. But actually, you are participating in this wide, eternal work that God is going to complete. Your little bricks, your little blocks, your little relationships, your little changes, God is celebrating them and using them to build his kingdom. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of what this has looked like for me. So I, um, I grew up in relative, relative, um, relative comfort and ease. Um, my, my father's an ophthalmologist, um, which means he can uh, read minds. <laughs> um, no, just jokes. He, uh, that means he fixes people's eyes. Um, but he's a doctor, and that means kind of pretty well paid. And so, um, you know, for me, I, I grew up, you know, in a pretty wealthy family. Um, I was one of those families that, uh, you know, we got the first PlayStation when it came out, and we're like rocking Tony Hawk and like John Lyman Rugby. Um, my family has a big white villa on the top of a hill. Um, I had braces. You know, that's a privilege. So that's kind of what I grew up in. And then when I was 18, I moved to Wellington and I moved into the goat shed. Um, and that's where I first saw Scotty, Scotty naked. Um, not much to kind of talk about. <laughs> Who said that? Alicia. Oh, man. 
You guys need some kind of bit of boundaries manifesto in those chapters. <laughs> So I moved into the goat shed and there, kind of some friends and I, we explored what it looked like for Jesus to invade every corner of our lives. But what we didn't kind of predict is when you give, like, Jesus that kind of inch that he takes a mile and that he messes up your whole life. But when the kingdom knocks, things get messy. So I'll tell you some stories. So one time back at the goat shed, I got a call from my mum. And my mum said, hey, Elliot... Um, I've got something I need you to help out with. Um, there's like a homeless man sleeping in your sister's garage. And I was like, oh, okay. And she's like, yeah, we kind of, he needs to not be sleeping there. <laughs> All right. Um, so I don't know who I talked to. Was it was Mace or Scotty? We're, we both. Yep, you were all in the car. You just did all this stuff together. Um, I think Andy Wordsworth was with us. So we jumped in the car and... Um, Drove over my sister's place in Tai Tai, and my kind of sister's like had a phone call with her, and she's like telling me about how she came into drive into her like garage, and um, then saw this like human shaped kind of lump, and like suddenly stopped because she like freaked out that she'd actually run over him and like killed him or something. <laughs> so we turn up, and thankfully he's alive, um, and we meet him, and his name is Adam. And you know when you meet someone, and the spirit of God is in you, you. They're God's child, and it's just really hard to say no. It's hard to say no. So we picked up Adam, and we put him in the car, and then we went to Macca's, um, and we had a feed, and then Adam came and lived with us. <laughs> Adam came and lived with us for not that long, like three weeks. Um, he didn't really talk much. It was kind of hard to get to know him. We didn't really know his story or really what he wanted to do or where he wanted to go. And actually, in the end, we said to Adam, you know, you know, we don't really feel like we're kind of connecting and, like, we're able to kind of get to know you. And so, you know, maybe it's, it's better for you to kind of continue on. And so it's not like that story has some, like, you know, wonderful, really nice ending where, like, you know what, Adam did is actually became a Christian. And, um, you know, then he went to university and... Um, yeah, now he's got a job, um, and um, now he pastors a church in Lower Heart. No, um, <laughs> not all the stories have these endings, but the point is not whether or not you get the happy ending. The point is that you are embodying the values that you are going to those people and that you are proclaiming that story. Embody the values. So we did this for a long time. We had lots of other kind of people live with us, like this Irish guy called Paddy who stayed with us for how long? About three months. months. And the only thing I remember is that over that time he was fixing his computer. Um, And so uh, after the goat chair, I felt um, like it was time for kind of me to move to Auckland and continue my work with Zeal. And and then a couple of years into that, I um, thought, hey, I I want to start a community. So I reached out to some people and and we started an intentional community in West Auckland. We've been there for um, like four and a half years, and we live this thing where we call like we're on a little cul-de-sac. We have two houses next door to each other. We've cut down the fence. Um, we live what we call like two houses, one home. So we kind of share a lot of our food and our meals together. Um, we have a rhythm of daily prayer. Um, we hang out a lot. Like these are our main people, um, and then we just kind of try and do kingdomly stuff in the community. 
you hang out with the people on our street. There's a lot of kind of people that, you know, struggling, have hardships, and former refugee families. There's some people that um, kind of in the wider community that are having a hard time. And I kind of did this in quite like a practical way. You know, I didn't like get down on my knees like at a church service and go, Jesus, what do you want me to do? I was just kind of like, mm, right, I guess I kind of want to do the kingdom thing. And so, all right, let's like start this. So I kind of did it. And the reason I did it is because I wanted to set up my life, my whole life, in a way that kind of made it easier to do kingdom. And I wanted some other people on the journey with me because it's just really hard to do, like by yourself. So for me, like that was quite purposeful. So there's a lot of stories I could kind of tell you about um, our journey over the last four and a half years, um, but I want to tell you one specifically. Um, yeah, because I guess it kind of represents um, this message. So late last year on a Friday night, um, I'm in bed and we get a knock on the front door. I open the door and it's this woman that we've been supporting for a little bit and her dog blaze who was always in tow so this woman um we've been getting to know her for a couple of years um she's in an abusive relationship um with a man um, that she's been in since her teens she's got a number of children to him who are all, are all in state care um and uh she hustles uh, near our house um regularly and she's and her partner both have this like ongoing synthetics problem but the whole thing is like quite messy. And um, it's taken us a long time to get to know her. A long time to build rapport, like a year to the point where even she will like come around for a cup of tea. But finally we're at the point where when crisis hits, she feels like she can come to us. So she knocks on the door and I open the door and we have a chat and it turns out that again this night, like happens fairly often, her partner has come at her violently. And we're the only safe place she knows where to go. So I bring her in and we go next door to our other house where there's kind of just everyone's kind of out that night. And so I make her a Milo and um, we have a, have a Milo and have a chat and then um, make her bed and she goes to bed and I go to bed next door. And I'm lying in bed, kind of carrying this a little bit. And as I'm lying in bed, kind of awake for 20 minutes. And then I hear this voice, a strong male voice on our street, yelling her name. And I know it's him. I know it's the guy. And as I like bolt up out of bed, I hear this window smash next door. And I'm like, shit. And I yell out to another one of our, my housemates, Dave, and I'm like, Dave, like, call the cops. So Dave, like, stumbles out of bed and, like, tries to find his pants and, like, you know, middle of the night. So he gets on the phone to the cops and we, like, run next door, just no idea what we're going to find and no idea how to, like, deal with whatever we do find. And it turned up and um, he's, he's not there, which is, like, I don't know, it's just, like, absolutely amazing. He's not there. But there's like a smashed window and um, I open the door and then our friend has locked herself in the lounge and I like just knock on the lounge door and say hey hey 
Elliot. It's okay, I think he's gone. Let's come out, let's get you next door. I don't think he knows about that house. So thankfully that night, kind of like the cops come out um, with a helicopter. How many times have we got the helicopter out in West Auckland because of us? <laughs> yeah, so we're getting pretty good at getting the, uh, the helicopter in West Auckland now. Anyone else live in like an area where you get helicopters above you all the time? No, just us. Yep, <laughs> cool. Um, and so we go to bed, like, feeling secure that he's been found that night, but we know he's going to be released on bail the next day, which is how it works. Um, and so we get up in the morning and things are still kind of at a fever pitch. And so over another Milo, she really loves Milo, um, we have a conversation about kind of what we're going to do and we, you know, we both kind of come to this agreement that we're going to we figure out that we can like smuggle her out of the city. So like the plan is for um, me to drive with her down to Otorohonga and then Claire happens to be at the farm in Taranaki at this point and Claire's going to drive up halfway and then we're going to like meet in Otorohonga, like do the swap. I drive back to Auckland, Claire drives, drives back down to Midhurst. And um, and she'll be like in Taranaki by the time he's released, and like he'll absolutely have no idea where she is, and she'll be safe. And we did it! It was awesome! I had to do a drug run on the way, um, which actually did turn out, which was really, really good. And I was like freaking out, and I'm like driving out of Auckland, and she's like trying to call all her friends to see if, like, in her words, if anyone's got some. Um, but no one had any, which was like awesome because it meant that like we're just getting further and further out of Auckland. It's kind of like, yeah, we're at this point where there's no turning back. So we get her to Taranaki and she stays down there for um, a couple of weeks and we just show her an amazing time. She uses up, you know, all the data, um, watching terrible movies on Netflix. Um, uh, you know, we um, give her a horse ride and like get her hair done. And then, like, buy her up a bunch of new clothes from the warehouse. Sorry, not really that ethical, but, you know, when these things happen. Yeah, and it was, and it was amazing. But here's the point. To be clear, I had other plans that weekend. It was the end of a really long week at the end of a really long year. And I wanted to sleep in for a really long time and go to like a hip cafe in Auckland and have a long black. Was that too much to ask? It's what I wanted to do. And then Claire, who was studying her master's in international law so she can like save refugees. She's like, <laughs> just did that signal to me. Um, had a 12 and a half thousand essay word essay due that Monday. We had other plans. But when the kingdom comes, it just messes up your life. It just screws with it. In the Gospels, when, when Jesus calls the disciples, they leave everything. You have this picture of these nets on the beach as Simon and Andrew go off and follow Jesus. I just love that picture. And so the life of the disciples from like before to after just couldn't be any more different. Like here you have these like simple fishermen who are now healing the sick and casting out demons. What? 
There are a plenitude of scriptures, like that word, that all center around this theme, that to get your kingdom, sorry, to get the kingdom, you've got to give up your own. To get the kingdom of God, you have to give up your own. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. And in this passage in Luke 14, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not at first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20? If he is not able, he will send a delegation, while the other king or the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. In the same way, everyone who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. To enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to give up your own. That teaching that I just read, that's just like incompatible with a lot of Western ideology. The ideology that you have from a very young age age been taught to believe. A lot of us in this room are young, even if you're in your 30s, you're still quite young. Those 30-year-olds are like, oh, thank you. <laughs> and um, you've got options. You've got big decisions that are going to make a big impact on your life that you make at this stage. What job are you going to do? Why are you going to do that job? Why have you chosen that thing? With the money that you make, what are you going to do with the money? What neighbourhood are you going to live in? Why are you living in that neighbourhood? You're trying to find a kind of a, a neighbourhood that's you know really kind of nice and clean, or is there another kind of reason you're finding a neighbourhood? What kind of friends are you going to hang out with? How are you going to how are you going to use your social time? Are you going to kind of hang out with the the people that are like you? Who are you going to marry? What are the values? What was the answer there? Too late. Too late, yeah. <laughs> um, we'll be, Cindy, we'll be, 
Cindy will be having some prayer. <laughs> um, afterward. Who, who are you going to marry? What values are you looking for in a spouse? When you meet someone, what's the kind of life you're going to set up together? What are you going to do with your extra time? What are your goals? Are your goals about kind of what you want to achieve? Do they kind of connect with this in any way? One of the best things that my spiritual director did for me was he told me to write a telos, which is a Greek word for like end goal or ultimate aim. He's like, what is the purpose for your life? And I encourage all of you to do that. Google it, write a telos. Why, why are you, what are you in this for? Because then when the world offers you opportunity, like a relationship or a promotion or an upgrade, how do you discern your response? Do you do this because it's messing up your life for Jesus and his kingdom? Or is it pulling you and entrenching you in the values of the world? To land, I want to read a parable. Again, it's not one from the scriptures, but it's cool. A wise woman who was traveling in the mountains found a precious stone in a stream. The next day, she met another traveler who was hungry, and the wise woman opened her bag to share her food. The hungry traveler saw the precious stone and asked the woman to give it to him. She did so without hesitation. The traveller left, rejoicing in his good fortune. He knew the stone was worth enough to give him security for a lifetime. But a few days later, he came back to return the stone to the wise woman. I've been thinking, he said. I know how valuable the stone is. But I give it back in the hope that you can give me something even more precious. Give me what you have within you that enabled you to give me the stone. Give me what you have within you that enabled you to give me the stone. For many of us, myself included, we have been allured by the precious stone of the West. The great dream. Grow up, find someone to marry, get married. Buy a house somewhere really nice. Have two and a half beautiful children. Get a good job, work your way up in the job, save up. Have some nice international holidays. Get a nice car. Sell the car, sell the house, get another house. Get a better car. Have your kind of kids grow up, have grandchildren. Even as Christians, we kind of have been allured by that precious stone. Comfort and success and accolade and sex. Security and money and power. But there is something more precious. There's something more precious. The ability to give it all away freely. That is what the Spirit of God asks and empowers us to do. To give it all away freely as God gave it to us. And that 
It's a small gate that leads to life. The end. We're going to go into some worship now. So if the worship you people want to kind of saunter on up here. As I do that, I just, yeah, I'd really love us all to stand. We're just gonna we're just gonna stand in silence for a little bit, and as we do that, we're we just gonna wait on God. And so my encouragement is just to listen. And Jesus, I ask you to come, and Holy Spirit, may you blow your wind through this place. Please wait.